Yeah, it was a really intense and important moment to see this this body of water that extends all the way from the Black Sea mm. to the Black Forest in Germany. And then he asked, what are your children? And my dad said, Yugoslav. And the guy was like, no, that's not an option. Welcome to Continental Riffs, a series of conversations between pairs of artists, makers and producers that considers Europe through a cultural lens. Objects and experiences chosen by the guests punctuate each episode as they consider ideas, memories and perhaps realisations that come to them through thinking about the continent of Europe. This edition's guests know each other as friends and as visual artists who share a studio together in the centre of Dublin. Barbara Knizovic is best known for her colourful, multi-form sculpture work, while Dragona Juricic is celebrated for her work as a photographer. As their conversation started, Barbara reminded Dragona how they got to know each other in the first place. Well, I think we've known each other for almost 20 years now. I was working on a project here in Dublin in fine art where I wanted to talk to migrant women in Ireland and someone suggested that I should meet with you and you asking me to photograph you on Grafton Street smoking a cigarette. So that's what we did. I never finished the project. We just became friends. Yeah, the project was a dud, but uh, friendship remained. Friendship was a winner. Yeah, Mm. that's good. I know that your back history is very interesting. I mean, I come from Mm ex-Yugoslavia, but you also have ties to ex-Yugoslavia too, so... Yes, so I mean, I'm now actually European officially because I've, you know, become an Irish citizen born in Australia to Yugoslav and to Polish migrants. So I'm part of a diaspora community. Both my parents speak quite fluent Serbian and quite fluent Polish, but that never transferred to me or my sister, partly because I suppose they didn't share a language. Therefore, there was no, there was no easy way for us to learn through conversation. Apparently, famously, my father announced when I was born that we're Australians now and we'll only speak English at home. I think there was a decision made around that too. And I don't blame him. What did that do to your relationship with your European grandparents? I mean, how did you communicate with that part of the family? With great difficulty at times, because my Polish grandmother spoke reasonably good English, whereas my Yugoslav grandmother didn't Mm. and my grandfather didn't on that side of the family. My cousins, for example, still speak quite good Serbian, but their father married a Croatian woman. Mm. So at home they spoke the same language. So that was the way they learned. But, you know, often we'd find ourselves at family gatherings and we were the only ones who didn't speak the language, myself, my sister and my brother. Mm. So it was it's kind of a fractured relationship in that sense. But as you know now, I've decided to revisit learning the language. Yes. I have been privy to that in the studio, mm-hmm. uh, your lessons in uh, Croatian mm-hmm. or Serbian, whatever you want to call it, mm. BCS. Yeah, it? can you talk maybe a little mm. bit about that? What language is it that you speak, for example? What's your native tongue? It's, I always get confused when someone asks me that. I think uh, Serbo-Croatian, but that doesn't exist anymore because right. now it's uh, Croatian or Serbian or Bosnian or... It's the same language, everyone can understand each mm-hmm. other, it's just they have decided to call it by different uh, names. We are both Irish now, mm-hmm. but we both have accents, <laughs> quite strong ones, and we both come from a kind of history of trauma. I mean, your p- grandparents came to Australia because they were escaping 
mm-hmm. uh, war and uh, and I guess I came here for the same reason. It's just with the removal of 50 years. Yeah, and the cyclical nature of conflict in Europe. Mm. And often you hear people say, and, and I agree with this, that the European Union is in a way a peace project. And it's named as being a very successful one. However, there are a number of conflicts that have happened since the establishment of the EEC or the European Union. Yeah, one of them that you lived through. I, is it okay for me to ask you about that? Sure. Strange, because my connection to Europe is the one of opposition almost, that uh, I didn't think about Europe until I was 16 and the war in my country started. And then I realized that we are the other of Europe. Mm-hmm. We are kind of the wild, savage Europe. We were in it, but not quite. And while the European Union was... Uh, being formed, we are disintegrating. So it was a kind of opposition Mm -hmm. in so many different levels. And I still grapple to understand what has happened. I guess a lot of responsibility I would put on European foreign policy that really did not function in that conflict. The European Union did not act fast enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, we've known each other for so long, but I've never really asked you these really direct questions. It's like, I know maybe the answers through osmosis or through sort of tangential conversations, but what nationality are you or would you identify as, apart from being Irish? Of course, I'm Irish, but I also identify as Yugoslav, mm. which is not uh, something that you can identify as. You know, Yugoslav as a nationality has been obliterated. You know, some people refer to it as a bureaucratic genocide because when the Yugoslavia fell apart, there were like millions of Yugoslavs living in ex-Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember in the 91, when Croatia became independent country, there was a census and the census taker came into our house and he was interviewing my father and asked my father, so what are you? And my father said, I'm Croatian, religion. He said, atheist. Mm-hmm. What is your wife? Serbian Orthodox. And then he asked, what are your children? And my dad said, Yugoslav. And the guy was like, no, that's not an option. He was like, well, the country existed when they were until born. two months yeah. ago. Of course, they're Yugoslav. Like, what else can they be? So they had this huge argument. Eventually, my dad kind of shouted at the census taker, can they be Eskimos? And the guy said, okay. So he put us down. So I think my brother and myself are the only Inuit. People living in Yugoslavia, the former Yugoslavia. Yeah, I mean, this question about Yugoslavia is interesting. And I have used that word as well because my grandparents referred to themselves that way when they left. It was Yugoslavia. Which is super interesting. It was really only during the 90s that this distinction started to become made in Australia as well. You know, in terms of migration, I have really clear memories of my grandmother's home. She called it a garage, but really it was a sort of a granny flat. And every time I would go to my grandmother's home, you know, we would be playing with these children who were living in this accommodation. 
and it was only years later that I realised they were all like migrant, they were migrants. They were coming refugees, to Australia, basically. refugees. Later in the nineties, certainly they they were refugees. And um, my dad's cousin came from Croatia with his wife to stay with mm. my grandmother for quite a long period of time while they got on their feet in Australia due to that conflict. So you know, my relationship to Europe, I suppose, is always this kind of sense of its relationship to migration, to borders, to like disruption, to conflict. But also you were not the right European either when you no. came to Australia, right? Well, There's like a pro- good Europeans and bad Europeans. There's European. a hegemonic yeah. kind of thing in Australia too. Mm. I mean, there are so many diaspora people living in Australia, okay? So I guess after the Second World War, there was a huge influx of people, mostly from Italy, Greece, Yugoslavia, Poland, places like this. So they they set up their own sort of enclaves in various places in Melbourne and Sydney and so on, mostly in capital cities, and also became associated with certain trades. So Yugoslavs did painting, house painting. That mm. was in tiling. And my grandfather actually was a barber in the home country. He died when I when I was about four, actually. He had really poor health in the end, I guess, trauma. So I had apparently hair that wasn't very oh my God, large or yes. thick. And he just shaved my head twice, actually. That's what they do right. in the Balkans. Right. It was a Balkan gesture. Uh, now my hair seemingly is quite thick. And that See, seemed to have worked. worked out. Yeah. But that was the famous story about me and my grandfather. But he was a barber. So I suppose that's the other thing. A lot of people came to Australia. I guess I'm just thinking about Europe as this really big entity. And then these tiny people or regular people who were just tossed around in sort of this... Mm maelstrom of war and economic upheavals and all sorts of things and my grandparents were certainly just those people you know they're small stories in a bigger narrative you know I remember both sets of grandparents being like why are you going back there they meant Europe Mm. why you go there for Australia is good not even thinking about Ireland as being particularly distant Mm. from Europe or yeah we made so much effort to get over here and now you're going back there I mean you're going back to ex-Yugoslavia and mm-hmm. Serbia and making work about this. I have been doing work about ex-Yugoslavia for many years, mm-hmm. hoping to walk away from that you know, soon enough. Mm-hmm. But uh, you are coming and exploring not just your heritage, but uh, much deeper themes. Yeah, like, you know, in my, my practice is that of a sculptor, so I'm very interested in the history of sculpture. And being interested in that, I discovered these ancient sculptural objects from Lipinski Vir, which is on the banks of the Danube. And the people of Lipinski Vir lived there for maybe four or five thousand years, very peacefully on the side of the Danube, nourished by the fish that lived in the river and so on. But it's an incredibly ancient uh, site, possibly the first large settlement of Europe. And it's very, very little known, I suppose, outside of Serbia, actually, where it's become a real thing of national identity. Yeah, because funny thing is I never learned about it in school. I know. Because I would say they tried to discourage the knowledge about Lepeskivir as a cradle of Western civilization in a way mm-hmm. because they didn't want to give ammunition to the nationalists. Well, and I think yeah. that that's their right because, yeah. you know, that, that site has been sort of harnessed in that way mm-hmm. and it has the potential to be harnessed in that way. So it turns out that those sculptures were discovered because of a massive infrastructural project, a collaboration between Tito and Ceausescu, uh, the Iron Gates Dam. Mm. So in the engineering works for the Iron Gates Dam, archaeological exploration was done, and an archaeologist called Dragoslav Sorejevic dug the site, 
had a hunch and said, let's dig a little deeper. And when they did that, out come these extraordinary objects. They're not found anywhere else. There's, oh, this is it. Almost alien-looking mm-hmm. things. Yeah. Kind of fish faces. Yeah. Some of them are human in appearance. Some of them are sort of abstract. Um, but the dam itself is also really interesting because of this Yugoslav-era statement of nationhood, right? It's a huge uh, structure. I was in it. Mm-hmm. And it was like a life-changing experience. It's kind of returning. I mean, my grandparents be like, mm-hmm. why you go back there? I imagine. But on the other hand, I think they may have been quite pleased. Mm. Some of elements of being there were really familiar to me. The food, of course. The language, too. I mean, it's not that... It makes me feel at home on a level. Even some of the country restaurants we were visiting, I was like, you know, I really recognise this aesthetic. You Even know, if you didn't see it before, really. I, I mean, saw it in my grandparents' houses. Yeah. You know, this sort of things covered in plastic, the icon in the corner... There would be like Byzantian sort of portraits of saints, uh, saints. yeah, patron saints of the family. Done in a very 2D way. There was no perspective in icons, really. No, and yeah. I remember as a child seeing them in my grandmother's house, and now patron saint is St. Nicholas. Yeah. And it was quite a terrifying looking person. Mm. Mine is St. George, of course, is killing a dragon. Right. But okay. it's everywhere, you know, everywhere you turn. Yeah, looking at you all yeah. of the time. But, you know, visiting the Danube in particular, this artery of Europe. Yeah, I can distinct. I, I tried to. Re- it was the moment where I was like, I want to make sure I remember everything about this mm. moment. It had been snowing in Belgrade really heavily. And, you know, the traffic and the speed people were driving out on the motorway was slightly terrifying. You know, I think it's three hours from Belgrade or so Mm. we made it uh, to the Danube where it is at its widest point. So it's seven miles wide. Rolled down the window. It was freezing cold. Everyone Mm. was, can you roll up the window? I was like, I need to smell it. Yeah. Yeah, it was a really intense and important moment to see this this body of water that extends all the way from the Black Sea Mm. to the Black Forest in Germany. So it's passing through so many European countries, but also... Where it is there, the border with Romania and Serbia, it's the border of the European Union. And that's where it becomes epic, really. And it is epic. Yeah. Even the Romans, for example, for a number of times tried to cross it to mm. face the, the Dacian tribes, you know, who are famously seven foot tall. And, you know, the Romans um, actually built an enormous bridge across the Danube, mm. where close to where the Iron Gates Dam now is. We get to go in, we get to look around. You're not really allowed to take photographs. But the the one thing I'll, I really remember about that is the sound. Mm. It's the sound of a structure trying to hold back all this water, but also generating power. So it's yeah. all these spinning turbines. The vibration is beyond. Mm. And you can really feel it in the body. And the body's also being like, get out of here. Not good. This is not good. I felt like it's also holding back a tide of history. It's holding mm. this sort of communist past... The story of Yugoslavia, displacement, migration. People were relocated because of the dam. There's an island under the water now called Adakale that was just Turkish diaspora people living there. Mm, and for years it was sunk. It, yeah, it was sunk mm. under the water. There was a mosque there. It's all under the Danube now. So, yeah. you know, and that part of the Danube is really significant. And speaking of journeys, I know that you've been working in projects that concern the former Yugoslavia. Yeah. Um, I guess I'm just thinking about you, the lost country, This is the work I did between 2011 and 2015. I guess when I came to Ireland in 1999, I was really confused and angry with what happened 
uh, in my country. I just couldn't make the sense of it. And I was living with a friend who was studying international relations. And he said, oh, you should read this book. And it was a book by Anglo-Irish writer Rebecca West called Black Lamb and Grey Falcon. And I read it, and then I was more angry because I thought she was romanticizing Yugoslavia. It's kind of a, a book about Yugoslavia between two, two world wars. It was written in the late 30s. It is a masterpiece, literally masterpiece for sure. But then, you know, when my kind of emotions of anger subsided and I read it again, and I was like, how the hell this foreign woman caught it so correctly? It's uh -huh. so based on a number of trips she did there in the 1930s. And then when I started researching her background, you know, she was quite confused about her national identity. Sometimes she would refer to herself as Irish, sometimes as Scottish, British. She was very fluid uh -huh. when it comes to that part of identity. And then she goes to Yugoslavia, which is kind of historically a place of displaced people. And she says, it's for the first time I feel like I'm at home, that Yugoslavia is my motherland. Because I think she recognized herself in um, destiny and kind of character of people. So I wanted to deal with this past of mine and past of my country. And I used her book as a roadmap to travel. I recreated her journey. So her book is half a million words and she tells you like what she does from the moment she gets up. So I started on the same, on the Easter day, 75 years later in Zagreb, and I traveled through all of the ex-Yugoslavia in period of three years, like she did. Mm -hmm. I was really excited when I was starting the project, thinking, oh, this will be amazing. I'm going to go back and reconnect with my home. I will meet lots of interesting people. It's going to be very enriching experience. And it was one of the loneliest experiences of my life because now I was living in Ireland for 12 years. I felt totally foreign. I could recognize the place, but I just felt totally rejected by the place, not belonging anywhere because of this time I mean I still have this accent you know mm -hmm. I, I just I was like where do I belong I have no country I'm a total in perpetual exile now mm -hmm. I mean now I really feel Irish even take aside the accent but uh, there I just felt absolutely displaced but only in the process of the bookmaking did I figure out why doing this project freed me from idea that one should identify with their national identity. It's like one of the first things you say, like, well, who are you? Well, I'm Irish or I'm mm -hmm. Serbian or I'm, you know, it's freed me from this. Because I think if you use national identity as a tool, you know, to move people and activate them in kind of political ways, it just becomes becomes much more manipulative, you know. It can be weaponized. Yeah, it weaponized. Can be instrumentalized. Yeah. So, I mean from what happened to me, mm -hmm. I'm really allergic to ever be in a position where that I identify too much with the cause that I can be then easier to manipulate. Right. Yeah. You discovered some archival footage of yourself from a news program. Oh my God. Can yes. you talk about that? Yeah, so I'm making a movie about a guy who made Westerns in Bosnia, in former Yugoslavia. His name was Harry Jackson. 
Was he, his name really Harry Jackson? No, it was Alisha Musli, but you know, his uh, chosen <laughs> name was Harry Jackson. And he made this totally crazy, surreal Western movies using local population as his actors. Like the whole town was a set. He would bribe a train driver like to go up and down the railway track like 50 times so he can film a perfect train heist where the local Roma population dressed as Indian or native Indians are attacking Native Americans. I mean, I'm getting all now, I'm talking about that period of mm-hmm, time and mm-hmm. how they referred to people and uh, they're attacking this train and the train is full of school kids and people going to work and they have no idea that this is happening. And when the Serbs attacked Bielina, the town where this guy made movies, the urban legend goes that he rode out on a horse dressed as a cowboy, shooting guns at the approaching tanks of Serb paramilitary, and that's where he disappeared. So the film I'm doing is about what actually happened to him, what happened to his films and what happened to this place, and how memory is such a tricky thing and how people remember things very differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the collision of myth and reality or yes. myth and fact. But also self-mythologizing and uh, rewriting events that are, you know, factually very different to what people are there narrating, which is often the case in places of very difficult history and conflict is like many people wouldn't be able to live with themselves if they remember things correctly. So that is also being explored through the film that I'm making. As a part of making this film, I talk about 1992 and we managed to find a footage of me as a 16-year-old girl taking Italian, mm-hmm. so national television of Italy, team around my town, which was destroyed in a war and also around my burned down apartment. And I'm talking about how all my photographs, all the kind of, you know, all the material possession just disappeared. But it was so strange to see myself 30 something years previously. Such a shock And when you showed me this as well. I just, you know, we see footage like this on the news regularly enough of someone surviving a war or doing this kind of newsworthy piece about something horrible that's happened to them. And in this case, I'm looking at it and it's you. Yeah. I I shook so much, actually, when I saw that the complex emotions I felt like looking at myself, you know, retrospectively knowing everything that is going to happen to this kid, really, going forward, everything bad and good. yeah, it was such an immense experience. Yeah. Um, you know, for the first time in a way, I've been thinking about putting my sculptural practice in conversation with this larger political, personal history of mine. And as part of doing that, I've been researching the history of my grandparents' experiences. My Polish grandmother, she did work as forced labour in Germany. She received a pension from the German government until she mm. died, and so did my gr- Yugoslav grandparents. They worked in an aluminium factory on one mm. hand. My Yugoslav grandmother said very little about her experience. Yeah, that's kind of, mm. hardly spoke about it. Yeah. When asked, she said she worked in a munitions factory in Munich. She said, they told me to make it smooth. I always made it rough. 
<laughs> and so it was these minor acts of like sabotage. Yeah. I would say everybody was doing this. My grandfather was forced labor in a um, motorcycle factory uh, during the war. Again, he didn't tell me or he didn't tell anybody this, I don't think. And they met in Munich in a relocation camp after the war, mm -hmm. I think. My uncle Jovan was born there. And from there, they went um, to Naples mm. on a ship to Australia, as did my Polish grandparents. So they have these kind of, you know, incredibly difficult stories. You know, people were lost along the way. Many people of theirs would, were killed in concentration camps, shot for no reason. I, You know, as to how they bore all of that terrible grief, I have no idea. I mean... And then just the trauma, I suppose, of having to relocate like that. Yeah, but also like you repress it, which is, I mean, I lived on the front line for a number of years mm -hmm. because after the war in Croatia was over, because of the geographical location of my town, I had a war from Bosnia. Mm -hmm. So I, I never talk about the war back home with my friends. And I understand why your grandmother, Serbian grandmother, doesn't talk either because people who are really in thick of it. I mean, this is not an experience you can... Or, like, why would you rehash it in a way? Mm -hmm. I mean, I take people I love to this island I go to since I was a kid. Do you remember the first time you came? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, it's called Vis. Yeah. Maybe we don't want to share that. Yeah, too maybe. Wide. I was like, you're out of it now. Yeah, so. I've, I've revealed it for everybody. So <laughs> please don't everyone go to Vis. Yeah, it's um, horrible place. <laughs> <laughs> and it's in the Adriatic yeah. in Croatia. And it is, it's a very special place. And it's also got quite a levels of history, right? So the Romans were there. Greeks the, were there. First, the Greeks yeah. were there. It's, there's layers of, and there's archaeological finds there. The Genaglava, mm. uh, the head of the mm. lady. I mean, but also has a really strong uh, history of conflict in a way. Mm -hmm. Nelson ended up there because there was a huge sea battle. And actually, it's the only place in Croatia where you can play cricket. Yes, that's right. You know, the mm -hmm. only cricket team in Croatia. That's right. Played by an Australian-Croatian man. Yes, yes, yeah. of course. And, then, and it was forbidden for foreigners until the 90s, which okay. is a big thing, really, because it was top secret island for Yugoslav army. Mm -hmm. So there are like underground submarine ports, uh, right. airports, mm -hmm. Tito's cave. Tito, mm -hmm. the dictator, uh, hid there during the Second World War from... Nazis. Right. But we also went to see something really beautiful there. I guess one of the most famous Yugoslav artists of all time, Ivan Meštrović, the sculptor. His granddaughter has a house there and there is a cast, I would say, like it's not his proper sculptures, but almost like sketches for sculptures mm. or very early work he did. And what did you think about it when you saw it? Actually, I first encountered Mestrovich's work in Split. Mm. And you know the, the enormous... Uh, sort statue. Of, yeah, the yeah. statue. Uh, is it of Saint... Which saint is it now? It's right in the And then there's the gallery as well. Mm. Um, so I encountered his work in both those contexts. These muscular... I don't know. They, they look as though they're elongated in a particular way. Almost like they're stretched in time. Mm. And they're all in stone or in, you know, the, the classical sort of monumental sculptural materials, bronze, stone. So those are all finished examples. But on Vis, there were examples that were half done. Mm. So for me, it was very interesting to sort of glimpse where there was a pencil mark, glimpse where the, you could see where he's chipped away and made a mistake. 
where mm. things were emerging from big blocks of marble mm. and so on, really visible. But somehow, you know, he's also really connected to this idea of Yugoslav nationality. Mm. And I believe he was very... Well, he lived in the United States most of his mm. life, um, I think. But the beginning of his career, I think, was really committed to this idea of the Yugoslav state, but was living living in, in the United States and teaching in the United States, I think, for quite some time. But if you have the opportunity, anyone who's listening, to, to look at his sculptures online, please do, because... His women are so strong. I mean, you would not win in the arm wrestling. Uh, you really there. would not. Yeah, they're 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 just uh, these kind of heroic, monumental, muscular Humans. human beings. Yeah. yeah. Um. You know, I guess this is also romanticizing this kind of yeah Yugoslav identity on a level, but still they're so potent, mm-hmm. and I love that we got to see them together. Yeah. It's a beautiful place and, yeah, just, the, mm. again, this sense of, like, history laid upon it, upon itself mm. in this one really small example in this island of Vis. So um, I've been thinking about organisations that somehow are also symbolic of Europe and the Aralson Archives is, to me, an example of, of an organisation that's keeping these documents from the Second World War, people's immigration records, forced labour migrant camp records, death certificates and so on, birth certificates, in this really extensive and well-run archive in Bad Arlson in Germany. They seem to have this attitude that this is something, they do it for free. I contacted them about my grandparents and they came back to me with all of this information about PDFs of their death certificates of family, birth certificate relatives, you know, information about where they worked, where they were kept, their deportation records and so on. I can kind of remember the first time you got the results and you were very upset. Very upset. It's one thing to know things through sort of anecdote Mm. or it's another thing to see it in a document. Also to have a sort of third party authority sort of relate all of this information to you about what happened and... A lot of documents were destroyed at the end of the war and the ones that remain are partial and so on. But it would appear that, well, as as I said earlier, that both, all of my grandparents were in forced labour. I'm not entirely sure about the history of my grandfather in particular. I actually won't talk about too much about that because I feel as though it's so private for him, possibly, so full of mm. grief for him. Mm. And he's passed, but I feel I need to keep that close. Mm. But there's something about this archive, the fact that you can access this information online quite freely, you know, through the archive. And if you can't find everything you need, that you can contact them and they'll do that research for you and send you PDFs Mm. and will give you a narrative of what they've discovered. It's their duty to do that, I think. And it's also a warning And a reminder, all this that happened to these people can happen again. It is happening again. Mm. We know it's happening not far away from us, you know, and not far away from where my grandparents were from or from where you're from Mm. is another conflict happening in Europe. So looking at these enormous lists of people, I'm locating my grandparents' names on these lists and then you see hundreds of other people, all of them human beings, all of them with their own families and lives that were completely destroyed I saw your surname on this list Mm. Urisic uh, listed there so 
Yeah, and they're all people from the same region. Mm. So I do wonder about that. Was this Jurisic I saw on the list one of your people, you know? It's how nobody talks about past. Nobody talks about the war in the 90s. You can imagine people talking about the war, Second World War. I think there you have such a continuation of trauma that, you know, the only thing you can do is keep moving forward without looking back, mm-hmm. which is also problematic because if people did consider history and what happened, maybe they would avoid Hesitate. repeating the same mistakes. Mm-hmm. And I also find very curious how the Europe is again split on the civilized and non-civilized parts and they think that this kind of conflicts only happen in uh, places like the Balkans or places like Ukraine or mm-hmm. uh, but it's so easy to instigate conflict you just need like economical crisis and there is already rise of the far right mm-hmm. everywhere in Europe mm-hmm. not just in Europe in the world mm-hmm. And this is the two ingredients that, uh, you know, need inciting happening, like the murder of Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo and off we go to another world war, basically. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that's right. And this is why I'm thinking about the Aralsen archives. It's like a document of the past, a monument to the past, mm-hmm. a memorial, I think, to the people that not just were killed, but were utterly traumatized by what happened to them. It's a monument, but it's also a, it's something that we need to regard as like a as a as a warning, I think. Mm. I mean, I asked my grandmother this question, and I hope you wouldn't mind me asking you this too. Mm. What happened when the war was over for you? what What was the moment you knew it was over, and what did you do? Well, actually, that was the moment when the hope disappeared in a strange way or it's counterintuitive. Because during the war, you kind of think, well, when this stops, everything is going to be fine. And then the war stops and it's not fine. It's actually, it it was just a situation that I couldn't tolerate. Young person, educated person, I had an opportunity to get out of there. And I did because there was no hope. Mm -hmm. I mean, now the situation is getting a little bit better, but this is like we're talking 25 years, quarter of a century. And and I'm really happy I made the decision to leave and come here, actually. And I was looking at the map of Europe and I'm thinking, well, this is a really cute island. It seems like far away from trouble. I mean, of course, I know Irish history and (laughs) they're all in troubles, but like in... um, scale of things you know i was kind of trying to logically see where can be the safest place for me to live because i really don't have capacity like my grandparents to go through like two world wars i am done now you know so you know i remember coming here in the 99 and took very short period of time to totally fall in love with irish people actually Mm -hmm. i mean weather now it's growing on me but uh And this is something that is huge for me, actually, because every time I go back to ex-Yugoslavia, I mean, you've been there, people are rough, like... (laughs) Well, I have to say, you know, they say, you know that you learn a lot about a culture through learning the language. Yeah. And of course, learning the language, not once have I been told formally how to say sorry. Oh, yeah. Okay. (laughs) This is so... So, oprostite. Yeah. But no one's ever told me. No. Well, I go home and (laughs) I ask my dad, can you please give me a glass of water? And he says, and I say, thank you. And after like a couple of days, he's like, 
Stop saying please and thank you yeah. all the time. Can we just have direct language, please? Yeah. So I became too Irish for yes. basically back home. Mm. It's too loaded apologizing down in the Balkans. The Balkans. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then what was really super interesting to me as well, we knew each other for almost 20 years. And then we found out that we'd come from very close to each other. That's like, right. Your yeah. Serbian family lives very close to where I am I think from. an hour's yeah. drive. So my yeah. grandmother was from northern Bosnia yeah. and it's just across the river Sava mm-hmm. from, from you, but down towards Zagreb, I suppose. Mm. And my grandfather was from Petrinja. Yeah. Um, must have smelled each other. Must have. Kind of. We must have known yeah. um, <laughs> on some level. Before their continental riffs end, contributors suggest something that for them catches the essence of Europe. For me, something that's a very dear possession of mine is a photograph I have of my Polish grandmother, Aniela Potowska, taken for a German identity document during World War II. It's a black and white photograph She's looking off to the side in partial profile and on her lapel is sewn a patch with the letter P to signify that she is Polish. A patch that she was forced to wear at all times during her time in forced labour in Magdeburg in Germany. On the back of the photograph she has written her story. I am Aniela Potowska. I was born in Poland in 1924. I was taken from my church with my sister Marisha to work in Germany as forced labour. For me, the photograph and my grandmother herself represent the essence of Europe. This essence is in the complexity of culture, of language, of history and conflict. But ultimately, this photograph symbolises to me hope, its persistence, its survival, and all of that that's captured in this photograph of my grandmother. She's up there, or wherever she is, and doing whatever, but she'd be like... (laughs) That was beautiful, Barbie. (laughs) Barbie. (laughs) Yeah, she would love that. For me, I guess the essence of Europe is in the object that I pulled out of my burning house. And I still don't understand why, but it was a leather-bound Bible. It was huge. I mean, if you're running for your life... You don't want to like really bring the Bible with you, especially I was a 16-year-old girl who had no interest in God or religion. The conflict in former Yugoslavia was fought in the name of religion, but it wasn't about religion at all. You know, I was an avid reader at the time. Thought maybe I never read this book. You know, lots of people think it's good. Maybe this thing is going to last for a while, so I could like crack on reading. The covers of the Bible were very soft, so it also served as a pillow when I was hiding in the basement during, like, bombings. And actually, I went back last summer and I found it again, so I kept it in my parents' place. And I forgot that I kept notes in it, so almost as a diary during these war times, and I've written in a kind of margins of the Bible. It was almost like meeting yourself again and it's like almost I don't recognize that kid and thinking about the trouble we stop and all we live happily ever after but life is a constant grind it's a beautiful grind as well but it's a grind and uh, yeah but the bible for me really represents 
in many ways the essence of Europe because there are so many things that are wrapped in religion and Christianity which put us in opposition with other parts of the world. You've been listening to an edition of RT Radio's Continental Riffs with contributors Dragana Jurisic and Barbara Knezovic, whose conversation was inspired by the continent of Europe. And of course, do check out for other episodes of Continental Riffs on RT Radio 1 and wherever you get your podcast. Dean Chiedorella, Wemshe Clean and Thank you for listening. Thank you.